0: Thanks, Mark. Let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 3. I feel like we've had a full day already. My heart has been filled and encouraged, so I'm grateful for all of you who have contributed to today already. I do believe now that we need to come to God's Word. God's Word is essential for everyday worship. It reminds us of who our God is. It reminds us of who we are in comparison. And as we look into Genesis chapter 3 today, we're going to find clear pictures of both. We are going to see ourselves in stark relief against the backdrop of the gracious character of our God. So we have been making our way through the book of Genesis and, of course, more recently, specifically through Genesis chapter 3. We have been talking about the fall of man and the rescue of God. It was our argument, our contention throughout chapters 1 and 2, that God's attributes show up in many kinds of ways. But the chief attribute that was on display, as we saw in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, is that God is amazingly profoundly, surprisingly, confoundingly gracious. Yes, God is powerful. Yes, God is wise. Yes, creation points out God's beauty. But more than anything else, as we took our time through those first two chapters, we saw God's grace, that He made His people, His image bearers, to image forth, to project forth what He is like. And not only this, he made them an amazing environment in which they might enjoy him and project his character forth. But as we saw as we came into chapter 3, the shame that was absent in chapter 2, verse 25, now comes. The opposer of God and all of his people, the anti-God, the one who sought to dethrone God in great folly, came to His image bearers and sought to dethrone them from their position as image bearers, as those that were part of God's family. And He did just that, tempting them primarily with the notion that somehow the One who had proven Himself at every turn to be gracious would somehow fail them, would somehow deplete them of joy, would somehow withhold something good from them. And even though every moment of their existence, and frankly, every moment of the created order proves that God is constantly good, and that He not only seeks to bring Himself glory, but He does all things for the joy of His people simultaneously, Satan brought that into question, and he was successful in his ploy, and the image bearers were plunged into sin. And so as we read Genesis chapter 3, we learn why things are like they are. Not only why Adam became like who he became to be, but also why we ourselves are like we are. So Paul can say in Romans chapter 5 verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So Adam was our representative head. He failed, and the whole race was plunged into the same sinful condition which Adam found himself to be in. And not only this, we act upon that nature consistently. Now specifically today as we continue in verses 16 through 24, we will find some of the specifics of what that looks like. So the first thing I want us to notice today as we come to the text in verses 16-19, through are the disastrous consequences of the fall. So we've already seen Adam and Eve turn away from God. They fundamentally, like Satan initially believed, that God would somehow withhold joy from them and somehow, through effort, they could attain unto His stature. But of course, this only brought shame and death. Adam and Eve's initial reaction was to cover themselves with temporary, paltry clothing and then to go hide. And as we talked about through those verses, this in so many ways demonstrates why we do the things that we do. It's why we try to cover up with fake righteousness. It's why we hide from one another. We are good at this, and we can turn just about anything into a cloak to cover up, so people will not notice the deficiencies and the sin that is there. But as we saw in verses 14 and 15, when God came to curse the tempter, when He came to curse the opposer, there was a promise of grace there. For He says, you will crawl on your belly, and I will crush you one day with a seed of the woman." And Adam and Eve were in the audience. They heard this. So simultaneously, God is speaking words of cursing and blessing, of the promise of hope all at once. But then we come to verse 16, our text for today, and God has more cursing to bring. Now, we read this and we wonder why God would be harsh It has been said before, and we've said it here many times, that in the beginning God created man in His image. And ever since, mankind has been returning the favor. And so therefore, it's hard for us to conceive of a God who would bring judgment upon sinful people. But the reality is, even though God has proven Himself to be gracious throughout these first few chapters of our text... God is also righteous. God is also just. And how could we believe that a God who promises to be gracious really is who He says He is if He fails to be just? That is to say, God must hold all of His attributes in harmony. For if He fails to do so, He ceases to be God and He ceases to be one that we can trust And he ceases to be one that is worthy of our affections. And so, yes, God is gracious, but God is also just. And if we cannot trust God to be just, we cannot trust him to be gracious. He must uphold every portion of his character. And so, therefore, he must punish sin. He told Adam and Eve that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. And now he speaks words of death, if you will. Here's what he says. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband or against your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So in these few verses we find words of cursing. We find words of sorrow. We find words of humiliation. And in these verses, we learn a bit more about why we are like we are. Let's talk about Eve for a moment. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So in Eve's two most fundamental relationships, the two relationships that are most intimately within her sphere of influence, they're both going to undergo consistent difficulty. The woman will experience brokenness in the two most intimate relationships of her life. The two relationships that should have brought her the most joy, the most pleasure, the most satisfaction, the most fulfillment, she will consistently Experience, brokenness, pain, frustration. First, in childbearing. Whereas, I think we can assume by the opposite of what God says here, childbearing would have been relatively joyful without pain, now it's going to be painful. So, all of you wives, whenever you're laying there in the birthing room, sounds like really Elizabethan, doesn't it, in the delivery room, and and you're mad at your husband for really nothing bad that he's done what you really should be doing is yelling exclam- exclamatory you know proclamations against your first mother she brought this on you don't don't blame us in those moments Th- those are hard moments we recognize but isn't it interesting that even something that that is so full of joy you know because what it's like after you go you know after the delivery and mom's now in a nice beautiful recovery room and All the hospitals around here have made those like the best rooms in the hospital, right? They're now quite big and they're wood paneled and they're painted just the right way and the best TVs are in there. You still get terrible food, but at least the aesthetics are nice. And and you go visit your friend or your loved one who's had the baby and everybody's happy, right? Maybe mom's had time to fix her hair a little bit. Put a tiny bit of lip gloss on, maybe she's no longer wearing the embarrassing gown and she's got like some nice sweats from Victoria's Secret or whatever. Everything's great. But but what happened like 12 hours before that was not so great. And why is it that we can have such joy over the 12-hour period later? But why wasn't it like that before? Well, that goes to show that, that sin affects even the most fundamental of our relationships. So, so sin is like this sort of incessant infection that probes to the deepest recesses of all that we are. You see, there's really nothing in us or in the globe broadly that has not been tainted in some way by sin. And as amazing as it is to have a child, as beautiful as it is for God to bring life through the body of a mother who will then raise that child and nurture that child. Isn't it so sad that even this most beautiful, fundamental sort of nature of human existence and reproduction is also affected? Now, there's a tinge of hope here because God is saying childbirth will still happen. He had told them to go multiply the earth, but but nevertheless, it's going to be a very difficult process. And I, I wonder if it... If it's pointing to something more than just the birth itself. That whereas before, raising children would have been a delight. And there would have been no problems. Now, though we still see delight, raising children is difficult. All of us, in one way or another, have hard jobs. All of us, in one way or another, have struggled with all kinds of things in life. But one of the greatest struggles is raising children. Raising children is difficult. We watch these little children run around and finally grow up, and we see the sin coming out of them. Disrespect, pride, eventually shame and hiding on their own part. And perhaps one of the most difficult things about raising children is as we look at them, we see ourselves. The other night, we got home late from dinner, Mom was out doing her thing, so it was just the guys for the night, and of course, we kind of bumble around guys. We're not as good at most things as the wives, so So I took them to get fried chicken, and it was 10 o'clock. If mom had been home, we would have eaten at five. We would have had salad. We would have eaten like some healthy drink. The kids would have been bathed by 7.45. We would have been singing together. They've been in bed by 8.30. I mean, that's not the way it is when dad's around, right? So it's 10 p.m., an hour and a half past bedtime. School's the next day. They're like hopped up on chicken and caffeine, and Jack comes to me, and he's like, Dad, I still have homework. Mom Mom would have accounted for this as well. So I said, okay, let's go do it. And so he starts freaking out, and he says, He says, I don't have time to do it. And I said, no, you're going to do it. And he said, but I don't have time to do it. You're not going to give me time. And I said, I never said that. And so we get into this, like, not shouting match, but it's getting pretty elevated. And I'm saying to him, you're losing (laughs) self-control. When I'm doing the exact same thing, but I was so mad at him that it felt good to yell at him. And finally, the Holy Spirit helped me enough to say, I'm doing the same thing to you. I'm telling you not to do. So we stopped and we prayed and we confessed and we repented and we moved on and everything worked out. But the reality is childbearing is not only hard in the birthing, it's hard throughout the process. And again, not the least reason which, because we look at ourselves as we see our kids. And that's an ugly thing often. And as beautiful as it is to raise these children, it's difficult and it's so sad that sin has infected them as well. I wonder, and we're, of course, not there yet, but I wonder if when Adam and Eve were finally raising Cain and Abel, if the agony of their decision really sunk in. It had to have come to some degree here in chapter 3, but but maybe it really settled in in chapter 4 whenever they saw their first children really failing, and then especially when they saw the one killing the other. The agony that came from saying, why did we do this? Why did we choose to rebel against the gracious Creator? It's the Eve will not only struggle with her children, she's going to struggle with her husband. This word desire only shows up three times in our Old Testament. Two of them are here in the two chapters in front of us. Moses says here, Recording God's words, your desire shall be for your husband. It's the same word that we find in verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted, chapter 4. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Well, that's not a good thing. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, sin desires to rule over God's people, His creation. Similar thought here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Eve is going to have unjust, unfit, harmful desires to rule over her husband. Now, some of that's just going to be pride. Some people would argue that Eve's call to submission as a result of the fall. I don't think that's the case. I think we can make the case from chapters 1 and 2 that there was always going to be an economy. We see this in the Trinity as well. The son submits to the father, and the spirit submits to both, so it's not a bad thing to be in submission to another. Adam was made first. In fact, he even names his wife. That shows headship. He's supposed to be a leader. In fact, I think we see that implicitly in verses 17 through 19 because he has harsher words for Adam. And in fact, as we already saw in Romans chapter 5 today, the race was plunged into sin not necessarily because of Eve, but because of Adam. So Eve's call to submission is not a result of the fall. But the difficulty of her submission is a result of the fall. So yes, fundamentally, she's going to struggle with pride and not want someone to rule over her. But perhaps even more fundamentally, she's not sure she can trust him. Think about it. The worst possible consequences were now upon her. Sin infected every part of her existence. Every essence of her coming prospect of life had now been infected. And though she chose to sin, though she sinned first, Adam let her do it. I think sometimes we have this notion, we talked about this earlier in this chapter, that you know, she's talking to the serpent, they're having this like covert discussion behind the tree, and Adam's like naming animals or something, maybe dressing some vines. It doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be the case that Adam was right there, and he let her do it. I said to you that the essence of being a man is imaging forth what God wants the man to do for all those around him, or to put it more simply, Adam is to be a good leader and protector for those under his charge. That's what it means for Adam to be created in God's image and to be a man to take care of those under his responsibility, to be like his creator, to be like his father. Adam is to project forth under the canvas of humanity what the father looks like. What is the father if he's not a protector, if he's not a leader? When Adam had a chance to lead and protect, what did he do? He abdicated his responsibility. And look what happens. You see, not only will Eve struggle with her children, she's going to struggle with her husband. Again, perhaps most fundamentally because she's not sure she can trust him. Because when he had his chance to do his job, he didn't do it. Wives, I think you feel this if you're being honest. You're not always sure you can trust your husband. And husbands, in many ways, this explains why you struggle with your wives sometimes. They're not sure they can trust you. Now some of that perhaps is unfair, a lot of that of course is because of your wife's pride, but some of it's because of your failures. Husbands, are you loving your wife as an image bearer reflecting the glorious leadership and protection of the Almighty? When your wife sees you as a husband, when your children see you as a father, do they see the character of God on display? Or something different. You see, when it comes down to it as husbands, as fathers, we are called to pour our lives out every single day. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 5. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And how did he love her? He loved her to death, quite literally. Is this a high calling, husbands? Yeah, absolutely. But do you realize that as you look at Adam's sin, it affected his wife too? And today our sins affect our wives. Now, is this to say that husbands, if you love and lead and protect the best you can, that your wife is always going to do what she's supposed to do? Clearly not. These are words of cursing for Eve. So, wives, you are called to submit on days when your husband is lovely, when he leads and protects well. And... On days, of course, when he doesn't do it perfectly well, because guess what? He's infected too. So don't be surprised whenever your husband isn't perfect. But husbands, you are called to be the kind of men that are worthy of respect, worthy of being loved and adored, the kind of men that create an environment where your wife is protected and she can trust you. And of course, this doesn't happen overnight. But it should be progressively true in our marriages that over time our wives can trust us and can submit to us. And of course, one of the responsibilities of the church is to help you through this because we know it's so difficult. So, what are the consequences for the woman? Childbearing is going to be hard. She's going to want to rule over her husband, but she's going to have to let him rule over her. What about the man? To the man he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it Be cursed it is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The word ground here is the Hebrew word adamah. That's where we get our named Adam. Adam was taken out of the ground. And though he was supposed to rule over it, it's going to have the final say. It's ironic. It's humiliating. It's sad. And whereas work is not a result of the fall, Adam worked before the fall, hard work, frustrating work is a result of the fall. Whereas before, Adam was going to be able to tend a beautiful garden that would bring forth abundance. I mean, that's grace. I mean, when it really comes down to it, you contribute almost nothing. And God was just going to keep feeding them in abundance. Now it's going to be the opposite. And again, there's also a twinge of hope here because there'll be enough food, but it's going to be so hard to grow it, so hard to reap it. And you look at this and you say, well, I'm not agrarian. All I do is go to Kroger. And if I'm really fancy, I go to, like, fresh market. But there's still a word for us here. The reality is that all of our work in one way or another has now been made difficult. You may not grow corn or soybeans or some sort of heirloom tomato, but you still work in one way or another. And whereas before the fall, your work would have been joyful, productive, guided and governed by the one who made all things, Now your work is difficult. Isn't that true? That's why so often our faces are downcast, why we're sad, why we're weary, why we're stressed. And as 21st century Westerners, perhaps no one has ever experienced this any more than us. So work is difficult, and death is coming. Notice again in verse 17 that Adam's responsible. He listened to his wife. He abdicated his responsibility. And now he's made it hard for her when he could have protected her, when he could have lopped the head off the serpent. He didn't. Now, every sphere of her life, every sphere of relationship for her is now infected and it's going to be difficult. And his primary spheres... Whereas before he was to rule over his wife, now he's abdicated that. Now that's going to get messed up. And the sphere of stewardship is now going to be messed up. So now mankind and the habitation are cursed. And it all seems very, very dark, very, very sad, very, very depressing. But Adam and Eve had to been wondering as the Almighty spoke these words that he had the right to speak whether it could ever be set right ever again. Before I move on, I do want to mention, in regard to marriage, because so many of us live in those spheres, there is hope, and I won't get to this again, so I want to say it now. In Colossians chapter 3, and this is similar to other things we find in our Bibles, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So I want to say to you before we get to the very hopeful section that we're about to cover, that even in these words, there is hope today. Wife submission is hard, even if you have the best of husbands. Husbands, loving your wife is hard, even if you have the most lovely, submissive wife. But notice what Paul says here in this text. He calls us to recognize our tendencies Wives, what will be your tendency to not respect your husband, both because of your pride and because often he doesn't seem worthy of submission? Husbands, what will be your tendency to not love your wife, to be harsh with them instead? But in Colossians, as Paul talks about being renewed image bearers, he calls them to these spheres of change, and of course, we are there as well. But upon what basis can this change take place? We've already seen the disastrous consequences of the fall, But in verses 20 to 24, we find the gracious hope for salvation. So the man calls his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So Moses gives a little commentary there. Eve's name means life or living. So notice that in one way or another, Adam has not lost hope yet. He has to believe that good will come. I I have to think in one way or another, they got the point of Genesis 3.15, that that a seed would come. And the seed would have to come through her. And even though it would be difficult, even though suffering would accompany the coming of the seed, it would come nonetheless, and therefore there was hope. So what does he call his wife? He's already called her woman. She's come out of him. But she's more than that. She's going to be the mother of all living so yes she was the first to sin yes pain would accompany the coming of every seed after but through the pain and through the suffering life would come this is the way of god this is why jesus could say unless a kernel falls into the ground and dies it cannot bring forth fruit Speaking of the way of his disciples, you cannot follow me if you will not bear your cross. You see, in God's economy, because of the curse, down is up, left is right. Everything gets turned upside down because of the curse. The seed will come, the promise is there from Genesis 3:15, but it will not come without suffering. But it will come nonetheless. Verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Most theologians would say here that there is a picture of prophecy. As God slayed the animal that provided the skins, dressed the skins, made them wearable, clothed his wayward children in them, he was demonstrating kindness and grace. And that is why, though this chapter up to this point has primarily been so dark, we find glimpses of gracious hope. Adam and Eve needed saving. They were lost. They were ruined, as we sing, by the fall. But God did not leave it like that. He came to them and provided them with hope. And He did it, In a way that we would say is atoning, in a substitutionary atoning way. Turn with me, please, to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah, one of the minor prophets, two books from the end of your Old Testament, if that helps you was one of those who returned to Jerusalem after the exile in Babylon. He was a mouthpiece for God. He was a prophet speaking words of truth to God's people. They were few at this point. They were no longer mighty. Their temple had not been rebuilt. The walls of the city were still in disrepair. But God has words of hope that come through Zechariah. Specifically, In chapter 3, we find a man named Joshua. He's a priest. Notice the story of Joshua. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan, the tempter from the garden, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Before we go on, Was the accuser accurate? Was he right in his judgment? Yes. Joshua's garments symbolically prove that. He was a soiled priest, unfit to meet with God on behalf of the people. What Satan spoke was true. But notice verse 4, The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So he's going to be cleaned up and now he can come before God and come to God on behalf of the people. Hear now, O Joshua, the I priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for there are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. This will be the Messiah. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Was Joshua an unfit priest? Yes. Was Satan accurate in his accusation? Yes. But what would God do? God would clean him up by taking the dirty garments and and giving him clean ones instead. And then there's the promise that one day one would come and do that ultimately, not just for Joshua, but for all of God's people. He would be the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus our Savior. You see, in Zechariah chapter 3, we find illustrated to us the doctrine of double imputation. Imputation is the doctrine that something that is not mine gets credited to me. And something that I have that you don't deserve gets credited to you. That happens because of Christ. Jesus hung on the cross in our place and took our sin, which he did not deserve. And by faith, if we will receive him, he gives us his grace, which we do not deserve. We are robed in his righteousness. And that is what Genesis chapter 3 verse 20, verse 21 are picturing. Double imputation. God takes away their sin and gives them his righteousness. It has nothing to do with justice then. God has spoken words of justice in verses 16 through 19 of Genesis chapter 3. Verses 20 and 21 have nothing to do with justice. They have everything to do with grace. Grace is the opposite of justice. And the rest of the story of the Bible is the playing out of that promise because when God clothed Adam and Eve in those skins, something still had to happen because that oxen or lamb or goat, or whatever it was that God slayed to clothe Adam and Eve had no merit in and of itself to give them any righteousness. But it pointed their attention forward to the one who would come, the one John the Baptist would call the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one who is prefigured in Genesis 3 and Zechariah chapter 3. And all of the thousands, yes, millions of sacrifices that Israel sacrificed anticipating final redemption. And therefore, Paul can say about Jesus. For our sake, he, God, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. The Double imputation. Don't be afraid of doctrine because it's your hope. It shows up immediately. You know what God gave Adam and Eve? He gave them doctrine. He gave them skins, but the skins were a lesson, a teaching, a promise of grace. We already saw that Adam's sin plunged the whole race into confusion, into death. But notice what the second Adam would do. Romans 5, Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, where Adam sinned, Christ succeeded. Where Adam failed, Christ did not. Adam plunged the race into sin. Jesus, the one who was prefigured in the clothing of the garments in Genesis 3.21, would come and offer righteousness to all who would receive him. Notice verse 22 in Genesis 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life, and he did live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So it's like judgment, grace, judgment. But there's also grace here too. Because if God had allowed them to continue to live in the garden, they would have perpetually eaten from the tree of life and therefore in one way or another perpetually remained in their fallen state. So even in the judgment and driving them from paradise, guarding it with these fearful angels that guarded access to the garden. Even in this, God was bringing mercy upon His children. It's interesting if you think about Jesus and the cross as He speaks to the second thief. He says to the second thief, "...Today you will be with Me in paradise." Through Jesus, through his work on the cross and the power of his resurrection, paradise is regained. And that is why, in Revelation chapter 22, the Apostle John says, "...then the angels showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, we find words of cursing, but then we find the glimmers of hope. The fallen woman will be the mother of the living. The wayward children who were naked in their sin will be clothed in righteousness. They will be taken out of perpetual fallenness. And that tree of life which they desperately crave, one day their children will find access to it once again. And this all happens because of the Son of God who came and gave Himself for us and one day will come, return, and set up His kingdom. We will have access to that tree once again. We will not rest or reside in perpetual fallenness, but perpetual, unending, eternal bliss with the One who made us and the One who promises to rescue us. In fact, I wonder if perhaps that's who God is speaking to in verse 22. I wonder if perhaps the Trinity is having a discussion here And all the plan continues to be worked out. The plan, of course, that had been set in motion before the foundation of the world. But now perhaps, and I'm just conjecturing a bit, but perhaps the Father looks at the Son and says, we knew this would happen. But you'll come, and you'll do your work. And the Son says, yes, I will. And He did. And so all the promises of God to us in Christ are yes. And so while you await the finality of God's promises, whenever you will have access to that tree and you will reign with Him and you will rest forever, we have opportunity now for hope because Christ has come. He has given His life for us and He has been raised. And even now He intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. So yes, this world is still broken. Wives, you still struggle with your kids. You struggle with your husbands. Husbands with your wives with your work, but there is hope because of Jesus. So I call you to look forward to the rest that is coming, and I call you today to rest because God made His promises, and He always keeps them, and you can trust Him. If you are here today, and you are yet in your fallenness, frustrated by your sin, there is one who gave His life for you. And if you will but receive him by faith, he will rescue you from your sin and he will give you life and the prospect of a future that can never be taken away. If we can help you with that, we would love to. So we are a people that have only one hope, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And like we say all the time, that's all we have and that's all we need. So I call you today to rest in this gospel, to hope in Jesus. Let's stand together today. Worship team is going to come now. We're going to sing a final song, You Alone Can Rescue. This is a fitting response to what we have just learned about in God's Word. So let's sing this as a prayer of confession and hope that Jesus, our Savior, is making all things new, and we rest in Him.